Hello, I'm Richard Hong. I'm here to read the scripture for today. We are reading from Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 to 25. I'll be reading from the NIV version. Brothers, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a hung human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. <clears throat> what I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it, is, then it no longer depends on a promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. What then was the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was put into effect through angels by a mediator. A mediator, however, does not represent just one party, but God is one. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But the scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin, so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked, until, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. May God bless the reading of his word. Good morning again. Thanks, Richard, for reading that. There's a story of a woman who died and left all her property to a Christian university. <clears throat> her whole estate was left to the Christian university. And according to the precise terms of her will, all her worldly goods were to be bequeathed to this Christian educational institution. Now, the woman's children, who lived on the other side of the country, were surprised that they were not going to receive anything of their mother's inheritance. Well, actually, surprised isn't the right word. They were outraged <laughs> that they were not going to receive a single penny of inheritance from their mother. And they, they thought that this college, this Christian institution, had taken advantage of their elderly mother by convincing her to give them all her worldly goods. So the children decided to contest the will in a court of law. And they tried to argue that their mother's 
description of worldly goods just meant her like personal stuff, not her whole estate. But they failed because as the law interpreted the will, it meant everything. And so they were without a single penny of their mom's inheritance once the will took action when she died. So they were left without anything. This is kind of legal uh, agreement that Paul is referring to here in Gen uh, Galatians chapter 3, verse 15, the very first verse of our text today. And throughout chapter 3, he's been proving, Paul has been, if you remember the past week, he's been trying to prove that, or show that justification and the Holy Spirit that indwells us comes by faith and not by observing God's law, or we could say God's commands. And first he did this by arguing from his own experience how his life was changed, and then he did it from Scripture showing the biblical record of Abraham, who was this man of faith, the father of the Jews. And then at the beginning of our text today, he uses this human covenant as an illustration of God's promise to Abraham. If you could go ahead and throw up those slides for me. I'm on the second slide now. Yeah, great. And as followers of Jesus, we often stress what is right. You know, what is the right thing to do, how we are to live, what is wrong. And oftentimes we focus more so on what is, we shouldn't do, right? But, and what is the right thing to do, which is based on God's law, his commands. But at the same time, as Christians, we also live by his, uh, the message of his grace in Jesus Christ, the freedom we have in Christ, the forgiveness we have in Christ about God's grace. So how do these two things fit together in the sense of God's law, his commands, and his grace and living in the true freedom that Galatians is all about. So there's often this confusion about the purpose of the Old Testament laws, God's commands, even going into the commands of Christ into the New Testament. The most famous of these commandments in the Old Testament are the Ten Commandments that were written by the finger of God on stone tablets and then given to Moses on Mount Sinai to, to share with the Israelites. And if you're not familiar with this event, you can go to Exodus chapters 19 and 20 to see that. Or you could watch one of these movies, The Prince of Egypt, could uh, give you some idea of what was about there. Or the much older movie that I grew up seeing is The Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston. But, so what do we do with these commandments that God gave us so long ago, also known as God's law? Well, today's text reveals this relationship between God's law, his commandments, and God's grace in Christ Jesus. It's very important for us to understand. And when the Apostle Paul refers to, in our text, the promise, that is referring to the grace of God in Christ Jesus. And the first thing we learned then in this text, that right in the beginning, is that God's promise came before he gave his law. It came before the law. Let me read again with this in mind, the first part of our text. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. What I mean is this. 
the law, introduced 430 years later, does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. And this promise was a covenant that God made with Abraham in Genesis chapters 12 and 15, saying that he would make Abraham uh, his descendants into a mighty nation, that, and through Abraham, all the nations on earth would be blessed. That was the promise he made to Abraham. Now, remember how promises work? Right? Have you ever had somebody promise you something? Uh, it's impossible to earn a promise. You can't earn a promise. It's given to you. Right? Now, take, for example, just imagine with me. Some wealthy person that you don't know somehow picked you out and gave you a house in Laguna Beach, California. And gave you this house. They promised that you will have this house. You don't know when or how, but they said you were going to have this house. So the only thing that you need to do really is trust that that promise is going to happen. right? But you may be prudent and say, well, I don't know if I really trust this person, so I'm going to go ahead and acquire some of my own housing just in case he doesn't follow through with the promise so you get your own housing. Um, but you cannot, you see, fulfill or do anything to earn or make this promise come about. It's either going to happen or it doesn't happen. You cannot earn or achieve a promise that someone gives to you. And God made, likewise, this promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 and 15. And there were no conditions set for Abraham. God just made this promise. Through you, I will bless the nations of the earth. Uh, in chapter 15, Abraham was asleep when God ratified the promise. So Abraham had no, didn't even know what was going on. And then God made this promise to Abraham with no strings attached, nothing that needed to be met in order for God to bring about this promise. So since God was the only party making this promise, he's the only party that really could affect the promise of happening or not happening. Abraham didn't have anything to do with this promise. He had, Abraham had faith in God, we see, in this promise, and it was credited to him as righteousness because he trusted God's word and his promise. So many years later then, after this, God gave this law, God's law, to Moses on Mount Sinai. And in our text, it says 430 years after this. And the law does not set aside this promise that God made to Abraham. It still stands. It's still good. Nothing has changed. It's the promise. So therefore, we can say that God's promise does not depend on the law at all. It still stands as it is. Let me try to illustrate this to help us better understand this practically. So a father went to his 10-year-old son, uh, Toby, and he sat down with him, and he told him that he was sorry for not being, being so busy lately. The last few months, he had been really busy at work. He'd been then busy at church, serving at church, and he hadn't been able to spend much time with Toby, uh, give him much attention. So he was apologizing. So he said to Toby, exactly one month from today, uh, you and me are going to go hiking and camping for a few days in the hills nearby. Just the two of us. You know, this is his promise. And uh, he'd already cleared his schedule from work. 
He's already taken it off, so it's going to happen. This is, what, this is the way it's going to be. So a week goes by, and then the father goes again to his son, Toby, and he says, hey, Toby, in preparation for our trip, could you help out and just kind of gather all the camping equipment out, get it all pulled out, uh, the stuff we're going to need, uh, organize it, clean it, get it ready to be used for our trip? And his son says, okay. But he says, but just when you're doing that, don't take any time away from your studies and your schoolwork because, you know, you've been struggling in school. And so Toby says, okay, because Toby's grades the last term, his highest grade for the last term was a C plus. So he was really struggling. And so Toby did that. He, he got all the stuff out and he organized it and he was getting it cleaning the first couple days, but it was a lot of work. And so he kind of lost motivation and then he just didn't do it anymore. He went out every afternoon after school to play with his friends and he just kind of forgot about it. And so then the day before the trip comes and he happens to receive his grades for this term, the current term, and his grades are no better than the previous term. Nothing improved. And so he was like, oh no, what's going to happen? And he really dreaded to see his father's face when he saw his grades. And he was like, man, the trip is definitely out. Yeah, he was disappointed. And so that day when his dad came home, from work, and he saw the grades posted on the refrigerator, he immediately went up to Toby's room to sit down with Toby. And he sat down next to Toby on the bed, and he looked at his son with love and concern. And he said, Toby, I saw your grades, and I'm really concerned about them. But I'm more concerned about you, because I've not been there recently to help you. And I'm really looking forward to having this few days with you so I can understand your life more and how maybe I can help. So let's go downstairs and finish preparing together so we can get ready for the trip. Now, the father's promise, you see, was not dependent on how good Toby did in school. He couldn't earn the promise. He couldn't change the promise. The father's promise was set, and it was set because of his heart that he had for his son, his love that he had for his son. That's why he made the promise. It wasn't requiring his son to be a certain way. And this is like our Heavenly Father's promise that he's made to Abraham and to us. His promise is an act of grace. It's a gift that he just gives us. And there's nothing we can do to change it. We can't earn it. We can't deny it in a sense like, say, uh, it doesn't apply to me kind of thing. No, so today's text answers this question then, what then is the purpose of the law? Right? Why did God give the law? If his promise is standing there throughout all eternity, in the sense, once he gave it. So with this in mind, let's read further in the text. Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions, until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator, a mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would have certainly come by the law. But Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin, so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. And before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian 
until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So here we learn that law was not given to provide spiritual life. It's not given to provide us with life. Look at verse 21. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. See, the law of God regulated the lives of the Jewish people and, and still does so for those of us who are God's people. It, it kind of gives us guidance, it, but it does not provide life itself. Uh, each of us live by the law. I mean, we try to live by the United States federal law or the INS law or the New Jersey law or the, the traffic laws, right? We, we try to live by those, but the law in itself does not give us life. It does not give us life at all. Absolutely not. God's law is the same. It provides order to our lives, but it does not provide us with life. It helps order our lives, but no life in itself. And we also learn in these verses that the law was given to reveal sin. Uh, we can see here how the law and the promise of God are connected very closely together. Uh, for example, the law does not make us sinners. The law, in a sense, just reveals that we are already sinners. It exposes the sin that lies within. You know, in a sense, I could say, like, the law is like this mirror, right? I can look into the mirror, and there, there I am. And the mirror will reveal the dirt on my face that needs to be washed with water to clean, be clean. But I will not use, even think to use the mirror to wash my face, right? That would be, that'd be stupid. It's not going to work. Probably would be kind of painful, too. But in the same way, then, God's law reveals our sinfulness and our dirtiness and our need for forgiveness. And then what we do is go by to God's grace in Christ Jesus, who is the living waters and then cleanses our sins and makes us clean. See, it doesn't matter how dirty I am or even if I'm dirty, the dirtiest one in the room here or maybe the dirtiest person in the world, but in Christ Jesus, I am washed completely clean because of the grace of God and his promise in Jesus Christ. So the purpose of God's law is to reveal sin, to, in a sense, convince us that we need forgiveness. But that's not the only purpose, because the purpose of the law was given to lead us to Christ, who is therefore the promise of God. Verses 23 and 24 speak of being held prisoners by the law and that the law was just our guardian in a sense, like our supervisor. You know, this child, this image here of a child guardian uh, in Jesus' day was an image of a very uh, much of a slave, was a very well-educated slave that was put in charge of a family's child or children. And their responsibility was, because they're very educated, would be similar to probably uh, maybe in today's world, though we don't have slaves. Well, hopefully <laughs> none of you have slaves. If you do, talk to me about it, and we'll try to set that right. Um, but it would be like hiring a nanny to take care of your kid, you know, but your nanny is like got a master's degree, <laughs> you know, so that could actually help your kids and educate your children as well. It's similar to that. 
So this slave, this guardian, would take the kids maybe to and from school, or they themselves would school your kids, uh, but they would also provide discipline for your children when they were out of line. And this would be the case until a certain age, when the, they would no longer be under the, the um, supervision of that the slave, the child's guardian. So like this image of a child's guardian, the law was given to guide us as God's people, to supervise us, instruct us of our need and forgiveness, and lead us to Christ Jesus, God's grace and his promise being fulfilled. So ultimately, God's law points to God's promise in Christ Jesus. Verse 24 says, So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. See, Abraham believed God's promise to him. And it was credited to him as righteousness. All who believe now in Christ Jesus will be justified. And what does that mean? Do you remember justified? Just as if I had never sinned. I am declared in the sight of God as innocent. I am innocent of any wrongdoing. That is what has been declared when we trust in Jesus, the promise of God, the grace of God. And this is only possible because Jesus died for our sins. He who had no sin took all the sin of you and me and the whole world on himself and paid the penalty once and for all for us. The only reasons why we can now be declared righteous when we align ourselves with Christ Jesus our Lord. And then he was raised from the dead, so then we too have the eternal life in Christ available to us. So now that God's promise has been fulfilled in Jesus, the point here, and this is the main point that Paul's trying to get to, is that we are no longer under the supervision of the law. But each of us like to always go back to the law because we like to measure ourselves. And he was talking about that earlier, right, in the past week. We like to measure how good we are, how good we're doing, because that's, that's life. What'd you get on the test? <laughs> you know, how'd you do on your driver's test? You know, we're always wondering how, how did we do? But we are no longer under the supervision of the law. Verse 25 says, now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. And remember this image of the child guardian. We are no longer, we don't need that supervision anymore. No, it's changed in a sense. Practically, what does this mean for us as followers of Jesus in our relationship to God's command? Does it mean we can just disregard the law now and do whatever we want? <laughs> no, that's right. Yeah, absolutely not. Does it mean we can neglect obeying the Ten Commandments? I mean, think of the Fourth Commandment. Remember the Fourth Commandment? Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. But Jesus described this new relationship in the promise of God in himself in Mark chapter 2, verse 27, saying, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, the law is now just an advisor to you and me as children of God, not our supervisor. It's giving us guidance, direction on what is right and wrong, what we want to do for the Lord God. It's not like beating it into us. No. Pastor Tim Keller explains this further, saying the following. Is it the design of child raising that when a child grows to maturity, he or she then casts off all the values of the parent or guardian and lives in a totally different way? 
No. If all goes well, the adult child is no longer coerced into obedience as before, but now has internalized the basic values and lives in a similar manner because he or she wants to. See, if we have the attitude then, say, hey, in Christ, I can disregard all God's commands, then there's something really wrong with our hearts. We don't really know who Jesus is, who we're following. We're on the wrong path. Philip Yancey provided a good illustration of this. He said, would a groom on his wedding night, so they just got married, and it's the night after the wedding, on his wedding night, would he have this kind of conversation with his new bride? He says, honey, I love you so much. I, wanna, I look forward to spending the rest of our lives together, but I just want to get a few things straightened out first. How far can I go with other women? I mean, can I, can I sleep with them? I mean, or just kiss them, or maybe have a few affairs? Because think about it. In Christ, if I have affairs, then you'll have lots of opportunities to forgive me after I betray you. We can practice what we believe in. You think, this is, this is ridiculous, isn't it? The groom is never going to have this kind of conversation with his new bride because his love for his bride, wouldn't even, he wouldn't even be thinking this way. No, he's thinking of committing himself wholeheartedly to become one flesh with her in body, soul, and mind. This is ridiculous thinking of this way. So remember the first half of Galatians chapter 3 last week? Through faith in Jesus, we move from obeying the law like everybody else does in the world, out of legalistic obligation. Like, I better do it, otherwise I'm going to get in trouble, right? Bang, punishment. To in Christ, we move to obeying the law because we love God and we want to follow the way he has guided us to do so. We desire to do these things, just like the groom desires to be faithful to his bride and the bride faithful to her groom. It comes from our heartfelt motivation. And when we fail then to obey God's commands, the law does not stand in judgment over us. You're bad, you know, you're bad. No, in Christ Jesus, we are forgiven. We are truly free from our failures and our sinfulness because Jesus has already been condemned on our behalf. The Holy Spirit that dwells within us then convicts us of our sin, but then compels us and enables us to do what is good and to be continually transformed into Christ's image moving forward. And when we see God's law, then we see the dirt in our lives. We see the sinfulness in our hearts. We see our own brokenness and how far we fall short of the glory of God. And this is the purpose of the law. It's doing its job well. But then God's grace provides us with us sinners through faith in Jesus Christ that we are free from the judgment and the condemnation of the law. That is true freedom, brothers and sisters. And we have an ongoing struggle to live as we already are, truly free in Christ. This is not the way of the world. This is the way of God. When we mess up, when we fail, when we hurt people, when we rebel against God, he doesn't hold it against us. He held it against Jesus. Think about that. That is so profound. And it then... You know, the truth is we are free. We are truly free in Christ. This is the message of Galatians. We 
Jesus has set us free. You and I are free to live for Christ. And all the stuff we've done in the past that we regret, we are sorry about, Christ says, forget the past. Strain toward what is ahead, because I'm ahead, and I am here with you. Forget the past, because I've forgotten about it. That's so hard for us to do. But that is the gospel message in Christ Jesus. So now, let's live as we really are, brothers and sisters, truly free in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending Jesus and for him living and healing the brokenness of this world when he was here for teaching us the values of the kingdom in, a, in contrast to the values of this world, giving us a biblical view of what is truly real, that being you, Lord. And in, in contrast to the world and what we buy into so often, and the, the distortion and the deception and these messages that are not from you, that we are not good enough, that we are... We deserve what we get. We, that we, we just are ugly. Whatever it is that we receive and accept and believe in, Lord, may we stand firm on who you are and that you have freed us once and for all in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.